as we sang, God lifts up those who are humble and he exposes the proud. He, he does not use he does not use the those who lift themselves up above others first and foremost in his dealings, but he saves the humble for he hears their cries and he brings low those who have haughty eyes. We see this once again exposed in the work of our Lord and Savior as we were working our way through the Gospel of Luke, how he saves the humble for he hears their cries and he, he uses those whom the world might consider to be a foolish choice to bring forward his heavenly glory to advance his kingdom. Luke chapter 8. Just prior to this chapter, uh, Jesus has uh, just been visiting at Simon the Pharisee's house and uh, he had the woman who was a sinner come to him and anoint his feet. And uh, during this time, uh, this was during his Galilean period. He was based out of Capernaum. But now we reach a new phase, chapter 8. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were to, take, uh, to talk about the next step in a ministry that a church or a mission team was going to be getting involved with, what would your picture of that be? In the world of the military, the next step means bigger and better equipment to deploy. The World War II American fighter, the P-51 Mustang, gets replaced by the modern F-15 Eagle. The M4 Sherman tank from World War II gets replaced by the M1 Abrams. In the world of business, you open a new branch. You hire employees. You try to get men and women who work diligently, ideally those who would give your business a good reputation, or at least not a bad one. In modern ministry and more, it can mean hosting bigger conferences, launching donation drives, getting better equipment and bigger buildings, maybe an arena or an amphitheater. In our world, upgrades mean bigger and better things. And people or equipment are simply stepping stones to pursuing that goal. Stepping stones to glory, you might say. But as we open our passage today, Luke chapter 8, we can see how our Lord Jesus does things very differently. As is usual for him, he turns everything upside down. He doesn't target the prominent and powerful. People and events are not stepping stones to glory for him. 
Rather, he embraces the humble as he takes them with him on the road to glory. We already saw that prior to this passage in Luke chapter 7, where a woman comes in, a woman who was known as a sinner, a woman who was weeping and who poured out a, who poured out myrrh, precious oil on his feet. In our passage today, our Lord's kingdom work also reflects this. This embracing of those who are poor and humble, his welcoming them into his work. In our passage today, our Lord's kingdom work has entered a new phase. Rather than embracing bigger and better, our Lord doubles down on the humble, foolish from an earthly perspective, but all part of his kingdom work. We'll see this in our passage today, summarized in this way. Our Lord uses earthly foolishness to bring forward heaven's glory. And we'll see, first of all, the work of the kingdom. Secondly, the workers of the kingdom. And third, reflecting on that, we'll see Christ's exaltation in humility. This new phase has begun in Christ's work of proclaiming his coming kingdom. Our passage opens with the words, Now it came to pass afterward that he went, or in another translation, that Jesus traveled about. With these words, a new phase begins in Christ's work of proclaiming his kingdom. That other translation captures that change that takes place a little better by saying he traveled out, uh, traveled about. There's a shift that takes place. A shift from being in one place and going out from place to place to becoming a traveling preacher. You may remember how Christ began his ministry based out of Capernaum in Galilee. Moving away from Nazareth, his hometown, he's established Capernaum as his base ever since chapter 4 of our gospel. And here in chapter 7, we find him in Capernaum once again for the whole series of events that took place in the lead-up to our chapter today. Now, of course, he didn't stay in Capernaum alone during this time. In chapters 4, verses 43 to 44, we're told that he had already undertaken speaking campaigns that introduced the good news in, in many towns in the surrounding countryside. But up to that point in time, he had always had a place to return to. He had always had a place for him and his core group of disciples to lay their heads. Now, though, there's, there's been a change. Traveling is no longer a temporary thing for our Lord. It becomes his lifestyle. Best captured in those words, not just that he went out, but that he traveled about. He later describes what this new life looks like to a young man saying, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What a strange thing to do. An earthly perspective would be, 
you have a base in Capernaum. You have a core group in Capernaum. Build that up. After all, there he has a place to stay. Capernaum is also a receptive audience rather than some of the other places that he's visited, like his hometown Nazareth, where they almost threw him off of a cliff. From an earthly point of view, it seems like a strange thing to do. The idea is that you travel until you find a receptive audience, and then once you've found a receptive audience, you settle down there and you build a base there. You don't have a receptive audience and then leave them. People viewing this from the outside might think, you, you have disciples here, you have a congregation here, a comfortable life, comfortable surroundings. Double down on what works. Why would he change? There can be times when this can be true for you and me as well. That we have our own comfort zone in this world. That we have people who love us, people whom we love and people who love us. And we can seem to be effective in the place that we are. Why change things? Why did our Lord Jesus Christ change things? There's a reason for our Lord's shift from having that home base to traveling from town to town. And that reason is that soon he is going to have his face set towards Jerusalem. The time is rapidly approaching when he will be looking to the cross. His time in Galilee is quickly drawing to a close. And he needs to make the most of every minute that he is in Galilee. And he's willing to embrace a step down in his comfort, in his living arrangements, in his receptive audience as well, to have a step up in the proclamation of the gospel. It's gospel reach that most concerns him. Christ's every other desire and comfort becomes subject to the proclamation of the kingdom. Because that's what he's doing. He's preaching, verse 1. Preaching. It's the language of proclamation that's used here. Publicly proclaiming an official message from heaven. But he's not just preaching. He's also bringing the glad tidings. This is one word in Greek from where we get the English word evangelizing. He is proclaiming and evangelizing. There's a little bit of a difference in the way that these two are, are brought together. And this is a nice distinction that our NKJV captures by using the word bringing instead of doubling down on proclaiming like some other translations sometimes do. It shows how Jesus announces the kingdom not just as a reality that is, that is about to be coming in, but as a reality that is already present. It's a reality that's already present in Christ himself. And so he's not just bringing the proclamation of the gospel. He is bringing in the kingdom of God. He is bringing himself 
to as many people as possible. What these words go to show is the great emphasis that Christ places on the news of the kingdom, not just in proclaiming, but in bringing himself to them. So we we see how Christ is willing to embrace a step down in accommodations, in, in worldly comfort, in order to have a step up in proclamation and in bringing himself to people. And this is something for us to reflect on as well. Rather than only grieving about opportunities that were, about the comforts of the way that things used to be, we have the opportunities to rejoice in what new doors our Lord Jesus Christ opens up for us now. We do have new opportunities. Christ is opening new doors. And we don't need to stop at grieving at the, at the loss of opportunities in the face of present challenges, even in the midst of the challenges that we face today. Our Lord Jesus Christ shows us that he didn't need what was ideal, ideal circumstances from an earthly perspective. He just brought himself to the people. We don't need to look at lost ideal circumstances or look for perfect opportunities to show themselves for us. Rather, we seek to be faithful where we are in the moment. We seek to bring Christ himself where we can and when we can through our words and through our actions. Not just in a way that other people can speak about the reputation of ourselves or the reputation of of Christians in the Christian world, but actually bringing Christ to them, the reason for what we do, speaking of the kingdom of God as it comes in power. And we can rest in the knowledge that he will use what seems weak or foolish and less than ideal to the world. He will use these things to advance his kingdom. This brings us to the second thing that our passage draws to our attention, the workers of the kingdom. It might be that as you're thinking about this and you're thinking about situations, the question might arise, but what about me? Sure, circumstances are not ideal, and I understand that, but I have a more pressing concern. I am not ideal for whatever lies ahead. Perhaps that's a thought that's been running through your mind. With that thought in mind, I'd like you to draw your attention to the workers that Christ brings with him. Not just the disciples that he mentions in verse 1 of our passage either. Yes, the disciples themselves do certainly, do certainly fit this mold of, of uh, less than ideal from an earthly perspective. They're not exactly ideal from a worldly point of view. Tax collectors, fishermen, one who connects with a political movement named the Zealots and 
and more. Not exactly scholars or wise, well-spoken men in the eyes of the world. Your, your average men, even in the mix of them, a few men who would be looked down on by society. But I want you to lay those aside for a moment. After all, these men are only mentioned in passing. It says, the twelve were with him. And then it moves on. If those men were the voice and the face of Christ's ministry, the ones who draw attention to the great master as they go ahead of him throughout the countryside, teaching his teachings and telling of his coming, bringing other people in to him, bringing crowds in to him as well. Then the people who are drawn to our attention in verses 2 and 3 are the engine that drives Christ's ministry. The disciples are, you might say, the, the, the voice and the face of Christ's ministry as they go out into the countryside. And these women, in verses 2 and 3, are the engine that drives his ministry. Really remarkable woman. Now, these, what I mean by that, so I'll get into in a moment, but these women themselves were foolish choices, once again, in the eyes of the world. They were powerful forces in God's kingdom, all the same. In particular, we see mentioned here Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. These, in particular, are honored alongside our Lord, having their names imprinted for all the generations to come to read when they open the scriptures to read about the good news of the kingdom. But what's so significant about these women? What do we see here with the choices of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, once again, we see here that the topsy-turvy world of the kingdom of God he takes the foolish and the humble in the world's eyes and he uses it for the advancement of his kingdom and the exaltation of his name. Those people who would say, who am I? Those people who would not expect themselves to be the ones that are involved in this way are the ones who are used for the advancement of the kingdom and the exaltation of his name. Choosing them was a step down in worldly value. Women in general had a little value in men's eyes. These women in particular had little value in men's eyes. And yet Christ chose them as the support workers for the gospel. So why did they have such little value? Well, many of you already may know the point of view that people in the ancient world had regarding women. Many of the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that men were primary and women were secondary. This was a, a common view in the ancient world. One rabbi taught, a man makes demands on the woman, whereas the woman does not make demands on man. Another rabbi, Rabbi Yohanan, or, uh, Yose, the son of Yohanan of Jerusalem, who was just after Jesus' time, but a son of a rabbi in Jesus' day, he taught this, talk not much with womankind. 
Rabbinic writings contain many comments on this pronounce, pronouncement. The, the Mishnah later says, they said this of a man's own wife. You don't want to interact with them too much. How much more of his neighbor's wife? They had this real mindset that woman came in a secondary position. But that mindset, when it came to women aside, these women in particular would have been looked down on critically by many. It may be that some of you ladies in the congregation can feel like the odd ones out. Maybe you feel like you have some history that you carry with you, or maybe you feel like the odd one out because your, your situation is a little bit challenging, your, your children are particularly challenging, and you don't feel like you see other moms dealing with the same challenges. It doesn't take much to, to make you feel like the odd one out. But consider how much more these women would have been the odd ones out. They weren't just people who, who felt awkward or who were dealing with challenging situations. Look at verse 2. Some of these women had been known to have been demon-possessed. Consider Mary Magdalene. Out of her had come seven demons. These women would not have been the first and foremost in people's minds. Yet these are the women whom Jesus chose to support his ministry. Considering the world that they lived in, the attitude of Jesus towards women in the Gospels was stunning. And the fact that God has their names inscribed in Scripture alongside the disciples as support workers in the kingdom, has them honored in the ancient world in this way, is stunning. One commentator writes, the Gospels portray a woman in a vastly different way light than the rest of the ancient world. When Jesus interacts with women, he often directly violates rules laid down and scrupulously kept by the Pharisees, who were the strongest proponents of what has come to be known as rabbinic Judaism, end quote. More than that, in his interactions with them, he lifted them up. He honored them and dealt with them in a way that no society in his day did. It's no understatement to say that the way we view women today in society as, as equal in the eyes of God, although having different roles, is not the norm in history. This is something that has its roots in Christ and the way that he dealt with women. These women could have said, Yes, I'm not ideal. And yet, each of these women could say, He lifted me up. Supporting his ministry would have been no small task either. Another commentator writes, To keep a group of 13 men supplied was no small task. Luke stops to tell of one type of assistance they had. A group of women were helping from their own money and, no doubt, in a practical everyday way with such things as cooking and sewing when they were camping along the way. This group of women, though, had something in common. They were grateful, for each had been cured by Jesus. Yes, each of these women who are mentioned 
could say, he lifted me up. This is my expression of gratitude towards him. So when we think of ourselves and our own situation, we don't stop there. We don't stop with thinking, yes, a less than ideal situation, but God can still work through this situation in the, for the kingdom of God. We don't stop there, though. Rather, having come to Christ, we are called to now look at ourselves through his eyes. We might think, yes, but I'm also less than ideal. We might not have as much value in our own minds or wonder what we can contribute. We might think that Christ has to take a step down in worldly value to reach us. And yet, he is the one who lifts us up. He is the one who raises us up in heavenly value. We are precious in the sight of God. And so we respond out of that. The main response is not to stop with looking at ourselves. Rather, as we serve in his kingdom in the tens and hundreds and thousands of ways that we are able to, year after year, we can remember we have something in common with this group of women. They were grateful, for each of them had been cured by Jesus. It doesn't matter how limited we might be. We offer ourselves up in his service, in his kingdom, in the little ways that we can here and there, grateful to have been saved by Jesus. Christ exalts himself in less than ideal circumstances, loved ones. Christ also exalts himself through less than ideal people. And we are humbled and grateful because we see the exaltation of Christ in humble beginnings. And this is the final conclusion that we can draw from our passage, Christ's exaltation in humility. What a humbling and comforting thing it is that this passage teaches us. Christ is exalted, not challenged by what seems like a step down in the eyes of the world. He's not challenged by difficult situations. He can be exalted through them. We already saw this in his birth. We saw this in his life, beginning as a carpenter. The king of heaven living as a carpenter. We saw this in those whom he chose to accompany himself. We saw it in the people that he chose to announce and advance his kingdom. Different characters, individuals that we met along the way throughout the Gospels. We saw this as he chose those who were humble in comparison with those who were exalted. Looking back, Zacharias, the priest, was exposed for his unbelief, while the peasant girl Mary was exalted as a woman who trusted God completely and was richly blessed. Simon the Pharisee stood in judgment on Jesus and concluded that he was no prophet. The sinful woman with whom he is paired in the Gospel of Luke found forgiveness and went on to model loving service to the Lord. Coming up in Luke 13, Christ condemns the ruler of a synagogue as a hypocrite. 
And yet the full restoration of the crippled woman with whom he is paired becomes a cause of rejoicing for all. Christ takes what is humble and he is exalted through it. It's these kinds of things that prompted the Apostle Paul, a later convert to Christ in the New Testament, to write this. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 31. Christ exalts himself through the humble to shame the worldly wise. Our humble origins or the humbleness of our work, at the end of the day is not the point. Rather, expressing our thankfulness to Him. As you look ahead this week, expressing your thankfulness to Him in your response to the salvation that you've been given. Expressing your thankfulness to Him through the opportunities that you are given. That's the point. Not your humble origins. Works done out of faith in Him. Yes, even through the little actions done here and there throughout the day. If they're done out of faith in Christ and out of thankfulness to Christ, He is exalted. He is glorified. He rejoices in that. Let this now motivate you to respond to this Christ who exalts the humble. As we read in Article 24 of our Belgian Confession, it is therefore impossible for this holy faith to be inactive in man, for we don't speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love. This faith induces man to apply himself to those works which God has commanded in his word. These works proceeding from the good root of faith are good and acceptable in the sight of God, since they are all sanctified by His grace. So, loved ones, as you go out into this week, don't fear that the value of your work might be lost. Don't simply live carrying it out from day to day without thinking either. Don't fear that it's nothing compared to what others do. Rather, speak of and live the glad tidings that Christ brings, even in the little things that you do from day to day. In all of your interactions that you have with people, speak of and live the glad tidings that Christ brings. Respond to this Christ who exalts himself through the humble with faithful and humble service. And rejoice that our Lord uses earthly foolishness to bring forward heaven's glory. Amen.